Good morning. Turn with me, if you will, to Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk. No one really knows. It's an Akkadian word, um, and um, no one really knows how they pronounce things in Akkadian. So Habakkuk, Habakkuk. When people try and argue for one way, just say, yes, you're right. I'm going to read briefly Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, through to chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, 12, to chapter 2, verse 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler, He brings all of them up with the hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. We see then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time in which you have graciously given us, a time to hear your word, to come before your living and active word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we pray that during this hour you would, by your Spirit, humble us. Lord, dare we pray, break us. Bring us to a place of honest wrestling and worship. Father, we pray that as we meditate upon the truth of your word, you would work within us faith, more faith to cling to you and your promises. Enlarge our hearts, we ask, to to say yes and amen to the promises that you've given us in the yes and amen of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray all this, Lord, not only to our good, but to His glory. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. I actually want to read another passage that jumped to my mind as I was walking up here. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You know the passage well. In fact, there was a great hit song after this passage in the 60s. Solomon says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, 
A time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What's Solomon's instruction there, but that all of life has its particular seasons. Sometimes there are good seasons and sometimes there are Hard seasons. In 1950, Martin Lloyd-Jones, some say the greatest preacher of the 20th century, began preaching in his London church through the book of Habakkuk. Precisely because during that time, people all over England, all over Europe, were asking the question, why is everything gone so badly? World War II had just ended. Millions of people had died, not only from the fighting in the war, but from the horrors of Holocaust, two atomic bombs being dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and still the ever-reverberating after-effects of the war as European society was without food winter after winter after winter after winter. The world was literally in a state of staggering bewilderment. Why is all this happening? Where is God? What Lloyd-Jones did in preaching through Habakkuk was essentially say this. If, if we had understood and internalized this book earlier, then we would never have been surprised at what had just happened in the world around us today. In other words, in this fallen world, progressive growth and constant status quo stability in society is never realistic. There's, there's, there's no ever-increasing peace. There's no utopia to finally be attained here in this world. And if we had known the message of Habakkuk, you would have been ready, said Lloyd-Jones. Ready at least to deal with the reality of a fallen world. Ready to deal with the hard questions of evil men and evil times. There is a time for war. Friends, are we ready? I mean, we have to ask, have we essentially bought into the idea that everything is good and will only be getting better? Our Apple smartphones, they'll just keep getting smarter. Our Fidelity investments, they'll continue to grow. Soon Amazon will bring every conceivable worldly object to our front door with the press of a buy now button. I think Lloyd-Jones was wise to preach through Habakkuk when he did. Would it not be even wiser to think through it now. I'm not saying evil times await us around the corner. I, I, I don't think that the clouds of World War III are quickly approaching. Maybe they are. I don't know. But certainly it would be naive, wouldn't it, to think that that, that isn't possible? In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, God tells the people of God to, to look out among the nations and see, wonder, and be astonished, he says. Why? Because something unbelievable and completely unexpected was about to happen. The Chaldeans, uh, people never known as impressive or strong, well, they were about to take over the known world. Look and be amazed, says God. I'm raising them up to trample down nations. And guess what, Israel? You're on their death list. This was something that no one expected. 
They expected this to happen, I think, as much as you and I would expect me to say Paraguay is going to conquer America and defeat United States armed forces this year and rule the known world. Paraguay? Forgive me if you're from Paraguay. But it happened. And look, history is filled with examples of unexpected happenings like this. Superpowers crumbling in an instant. It's been interesting to read lately, uh, and a lot of people are noting this across uh, the journalistic uh, spectrum, that, that there's this increasing trend throughout America, especially in America, over the last 10 years, and, and, and more and more so in the last five Years, a trend that's impacted folks from every level of the socioeconomic ladder where people are preparing for the worst. Everything from personal bug out bags, you know, the kind of personal backpacks that will help you get through the, the demise of a crumbling society, to building bomb shelters. That's a thing now. The Cold War, it didn't stop. People are picking that back up. It's even the super rich buying homes on hard to reach Pacific islands in order to get there quickly. People are prepping for the unexpected. Well, whether we want to do that or not, I say let us continue to consider Habakkuk as our spiritual bug-out bag. Our being prepared now for what the Bible clearly says could happen at any time. The onslaught of bad and evil times. We began looking at this small book about three or four weeks ago. We only covered the first 11 verses, so this morning I want us to just consider the end of chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1, which I just read. Uh, let's recap quickly. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, Habakkuk looks out among the people of God, his own society and culture, and what does he see? Rampant moral decay. The law had been paralyzed, he says. Justice was being perverted. And so he cried out to God, How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help? Why do you make me to see iniquity while you idly look at wrong? God gives a surprising answer, though, in verses 5 through 11, where he tells Habakkuk, Yep, tell all the people of Israel, look out among the nations and wonder. I am raising up the Chaldeans, Babylon, to come and crush you. They will destroy Jerusalem, they will starve your people, enslave your people, and in essence, rule the known world under their cruelty. In this morning's text, we get Habakkuk's answer. This is his response to God's revelation, that God in sovereign judgment is raising up Babylon and bringing this evil people to crush Israel. Consider that for a second. Consider how you might respond in such a situation. How do you respond to the mysteries of God's providence when it's not always to your favor? When hard situations are brought to bear upon your life and, well, God allows injustices, pains, and sicknesses, and even the wicked sins of other people to hurt and break you down. I want us to see that Habakkuk's response here, though it is multifaceted, what's well, a response of worship? He is at a foundational level addressing and centered upon God. Everything he says here in these brief seven verses is anchored in the reality of God, and, and so Habakkuk can't help but respond in worship. Friends, I think that that matters. See, even though Habakkuk really does offer up his complaints to God, he really does kind of say, God, what are you doing? 
He's struggling, right? He's wrestling. But for Habakkuk, it's also never the option to not ask God. He never even hints at the idea that he could legitimately walk away from God. As the book goes on, it becomes clearer and clearer, at least for Habakkuk, that God really is the only person he can turn to, even when, especially when, Habakkuk doesn't get it all. As we continue to consider and and prepare our souls for what we read from Solomon earlier, preparing for hard and evil times, let's realize now that a heart anchored in worship is fundamental to weathering the storms of life. How can we, as Martin Lloyd-Jones preached to his church in post-war London, be ready for the gathering storm clouds of hard, hard times? Well, I think we see our answer here, and And it's Habakkuk responding to God in four ways. You might have the sermon outline card in front of you. And this will be the outline for the rest of our time this morning. Firstly, Habakkuk engages in challenging worship. Challenging worship. Secondly, he responds with contented worship. Thirdly, he responds in candid worship. And fourthly, Habakkuk responds with cautious worship. So first we see Habakkuk respond with, well, with a challenging worship. What do I mean by that? Well, this. His response, though a response of worship, is still challenging God, isn't it? It's an honest complaint towards God. Look at the very first verse line, that, that verse line in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? Are you not eternal? Now, in the English, we, we don't see this as clearly as we might in the Hebrew, because in the Hebrew, the question is, it's pointedly rhetorical. And we know this. Rhetorical questions aren't asked to get an answer that we don't know. No, they're asked to make a point, a challenging point, that we all already know. Verse 12 is really kind of a punishing statement. Essentially, what Habakkuk is saying is something like this. I thought you were infinite. Aren't you the eternal Everlasting God? Francis I. Anderson, who's a Hebrew scholar, commenting on the use of this this particular Hebrew word here, translated as, are you not? He says, most of the 96 occurrences of this word in the Bible are in vigorous human arguments. Nothing, therefore, could have been more abrupt than the beginning of Habakkuk's second prayer in verse 12. There is nothing like it anywhere in the Bible. God is not being approached with courtesy and respect. Habakkuk is in actual anguish. Are you not from everlasting? You know why this is. Because again, back in verses 2, 3, and 4, Habakkuk is asking God, why why are you allowing evil and injustice to reign? Where is your salvation? God answers and says, I'm I'm not letting it rain. I'm raising up the ruthless Babylonians. And so, yeah, they are going to put your evil and injustice down, Habakkuk. And Habakkuk says, what? I, I just complained. Why are you letting evil and injustice reign? And your answer is, I'm going to raise up and send a nation to you that's even more evil and unjust? That's your answer? I thought you were the infinite, eternal, only wise God. You see? Habakkuk is wrestling with God. His prayer, his worship, it's this kind of soul-stirring, teeth-grinding, fist-clenched worship. Friends, I want to suggest that that 
That's real, authentic worship. That's the stuff that shapes our hearts to come near and know our God. Habakkuk doesn't understand. He doesn't. Look at his continued complaint in verse 13. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And you're silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. If Habakkuk could plan it all out, this certainly wouldn't be the way. And yet in worship, Habakkuk brings his concerns, his complaint, his challenging worship, and he brings his struggle to God. You see, again, for Habakkuk, it's not even an option, though, to walk away from God, is it? Throwing up his hands and saying, I'm done. Now, Habakkuk seems to have the same answer that the Apostle Peter does when he didn't quite understand what Jesus was doing, right? Where else and to whom else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. So I think this leads us to our second point. Not only does Habakkuk respond with challenging worship, he also approached the Lord in contented worship. Look at the second line in verse 12. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. You see, there, there, there seems to be this, I think, this chasm of tension between that first line and then the second one we just read. And again, Francis Anderson comments that if, if that first line comes close to being the most abrasive and offensive thing anyone could say to God in the Bible... Habakkuk quickly falls back into a worship that rests and finds contentment in who God is. Yahweh, my God, my Holy One. It's as if he uttered these words, you know, to make that rhetorical point, I thought you were eternal, God. And even as those words were still coming out of his mouth, he was made aware. He was reminded, not only of of what God is, yes, yes, he is eternal, And now he's actually more reminded of who God is. He's the relational God who has made a covenant with his people, the one who has revealed his name to the Israelites and has promised to be their God and to keep them as his people. He's Yahweh. And notice that Habakkuk says, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One. Do you see the relationship there? Habakkuk's not wrestling through this very tough issue by contemplating God's eternal attributes alone. Now what Habakkuk is contented with and what what leads him to this contented worship is his meditating upon who God is for Habakkuk. He's thinking here of his covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love. Perhaps that's why Habakkuk declares in verse 12, almost out of nowhere, we shall not die. Notice he says we. He's thinking of the covenant community of God's people. God has promised they will be his. Yahweh, we won't die. There was a Puritan preacher in Scotland in the 1600s named James Guthrie. And under a Roman Catholic monarchy was quickly arrested put on trial and found guilty for preaching a gospel that was contrary to Roman Catholic tradition. And so the uh, penalty was death. And it was death by cutting his head off. And so as the crowds gathered, as they usually would in those days, to see this death penalty execution, James Guthrie, uh, as 
almost every martyr in those days did, either sang a song of praise or began to worship God. And James Guthrie cried out, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, I shall not die. Seconds away from the sword coming down, the axe coming down, and him actually dying. He could say those words in the face of death, knowing that the covenant faithful God promised him in Christ eternal life. I think there's something of that here where Habakkuk looks to the coming of Babylon and Babylon will crush Israel. They will die. And yet Habakkuk realizes, even in the midst of that death, we shall not die. God will keep us. Many of us will. But God will keep a remnant, an elect stump of people. And indeed, even if we do die, we will eternally know the God of life forevermore. There's an interesting phenomenon here, which I think Tim Keller kind of brilliantly points out, and it's this. There's, well, there's the kind of traditional, right, re- religious, churchy folk who, who look at all this that's going on with Habakkuk and say, oh, oh no, Habakkuk, you, you can't say that to God. You can't challenge him that way. You can't ask that question, are you eternal? What's important for them is that, well, that we look and we say all the right words, right? Uh, we wear our ties to church and, 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 and we, we say the right confessions and we sing the right songs. You don't wrestle with God. But then on the other hand, there's, there's the modern cosmopolitan man where, where we all have this kind of enormous confidence in our perceptive abilities and in our own human reason. And so what we say is, I, I don't see how God is bringing good out of this situation. I can't understand how this good is good at all, and, and it doesn't make sense to me, so I'm not going to believe in him. I'm out of here. And Habakkuk does neither of those things. On the one hand, he's so much more honest than our traditional religiosity, not feeling like he has to go through the pomp and circumstance of religion. He's intellectually and he's emotionally frank, challenging God in real, honest worship. But on the other hand, he wouldn't even think of leaving, not in a million years. In fact, when he says, my holy one, this is what I think he might be saying. God, I wouldn't be so upset if I didn't think you were holy, but I know you are. You are the upright and holy God who cannot even look at evil. And so to be frank, oh Lord, I don't get it. But I won't walk away. Because if I can't figure all of this out with you, I certainly won't be able to do it without you. Where else do I go? So for Habakkuk, and I think for us, this isn't a matter of, you know, don't question. Don't, don't stir the pot. Just grit your teeth, and as Mike preached a couple of weeks ago, just have faith. And neither is this, I'm not going to believe in a God who allows all this. It's neither of those. What we see here in Habakkuk is, is this unconditionally faithful wrestling. There's his worship. An honest wrestling, which is unconditionally faithful. You know what produces that kind of worship? I'll tell you. It's an understanding of sovereign grace. It's an understanding that God really does bring out salvation in and through the darkest situations. 
We can wrestle with God and worship like this if we understand that God has brought light out of darkness. That God has brought us life in and through the death of his son. That God has made us his treasure by allowing his son to become a wretch. That God has brought about our salvation and forgiveness by giving up his son to destruction and condemnation. Oh, there was no darker period in all of human history than Christ's crucifixion on the cross. And there, there we see sovereign grace. There we see the ability to wrestle with a real God who can bring out the greatest good out of the greatest evil and say, yes, I believe. There's an interesting connection, I think, between Habakkuk's complaint in verse 13 where he asks God, how can you allow the wicked to swallow the man more righteous than he? And then how God answers later down in chapter 2, verse 4. See there? Where he says, here's the righteous man, the one who lives by his faith. And we'll look at that more next week. But for Habakkuk, I think, I think he was tempted to think God is bound to act and relate to us, Israel, based upon what we deserve. Israel was certainly more righteous than Babylon. That point is easy to defend. But I think Habakkuk, perhaps like many of us, are tempted to think that they didn't deserve what God was doing. You see, when they looked out among other nations, when we look out at other people, we know we're not as bad as they are. But as soon as we play that game, we begin to lose sight of truth, and thus we begin to lose sight of grace, right? We lose sight of truth because our only real standard of righteousness is God. It's it's easy to look clean and pure when comparing ourselves to other sinners. But compare yourself to the truth and purity of God and his word. Friend, you won't stand so self-righteously assured. I promise. We also begin to lose sight of grace because by comparing ourselves to other people, we begin to say things like, well, they deserve this and I deserve that. But when we compare ourselves to God and stand in the truth of his life, we understand no one wants what they deserve. What we deserve is judgment. What we deserve is Babylon and more, eternally speaking. But oh, how wonderful is God's grace when we're focused upon God and we're centered in our worship and anchored in God. For those of you here this morning who may not be Christians, understand this. Grace is, it's not just this kind of forgiving sin. God doesn't and will not just let bygones be bygones. No, he's the holy one, as Habakkuk makes clear. He is the eternal and upright God who must deal with sin. We're upset when earthly judges let criminals go free. They're fired. They're thrown in jail. And eternally more so is that true of our holy and righteous God. We cannot just stand before him on judgment day and say, forgive me? No. So what's the answer? How does a holy God allow sinners to stand forgiven? Where is grace? I think there's the hint in verse 3 when Habakkuk asks God, why do you, God, idly look at traitors and you're silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. There's the grace. When the only righteous and perfect man was swallowed up by wicked men upon the cross, 
And there upon the cross, all our sin was put upon him. Did not Jesus say to the very men who were crucifying them, forgive them, Lord, for they knew not what they do? Did not Christ send his apostles as soon as he was raised on the third day to go to Jerusalem first and preach repentance and forgiveness to the very people who said, crucify him, crucify him? Wicked men swallowed up the righteous man so that in the death of the righteous man, all of us as wicked men and women might find grace and salvation and forgiveness. There's grace. God has judged your sin in Christ. Well, all this leads Habakkuk to our third point, to respond to God in candid worship. To respond to God in candid worship. In other words, Habakkuk is honest in contemplating the reality of the situation in light of who God is. He's not worshiping God like an ostrich sticking his head in the sand. He isn't blind to the hard things of life. And how often we're tempted to that, right? When the struggles of life approach, we want to hide in different things. We want to just Netflix and chill and let the movies cast our cares away. Perhaps it takes a more dangerous point in opening up a bottle or self-medicating or sinfully allowing distractions to take us away from the hard struggles of life? No. How can Habakkuk worship God honestly? Well, he does so by taking an honest look around him. Look there at the end of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He knows that in God's sovereignty, the hard things have uh, have been allowed to happen. And then there in verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And then turning his gaze towards Babylon, he says, he, or Babylon, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. Babylon, interestingly, when they uh, enslaved the people, uh, they would uh, take them away in exile by putting fish hooks in their nose and linking nose to nose to nose, and then leading them astray for days on end to Babylon. Or really uh, drags them out with his net and gathers them with his dragnet. They would literally throw nets to enslave and and take captive um, those they were conquering. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk is honest and is taking a real look at the situation around him and isn't trying to put blinders on, but goes to God in the midst of the reality and the horror of the situation that's approaching him. Habakkuk can say along with Horatio Spafford that when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. In fact, he, he deals honestly with the situation that God is bringing upon Israel throughout the rest of the book, and we'll see this more as we go along. Now this leads Habakkuk to end his response in chapter 2, verse 1, with what is our last point, and that is his cautious worship. Look there at the text in chapter 2, verse 1. 
I'll take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, this is a really interesting verse. If for nothing else, I think it's setting up for us this, this kind of suspense for what's to come. It's a, it's a bridgeway between chapter 1 and then chapter 2, and Habakkuk is saying, Okay, God, I've, I've wrestled with your faithfulness in honest worship, and so I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait and watch for your providences to play out. But not only that, look at what he says in verse 1. I will look out to see what he will say to me. Isn't that interesting? Habakkuk is more concerned with God's leading and God's words than with the gathering storm clouds of evil Babylon, even after he's just honestly taken count of what's going to happen. They're approaching, yes. They will come and kill and literally dash our young Israelite children upon the rocks. But for Habakkuk, he is concerned with God's words. His worship is cautiously waiting, hopefully looking forward to God's answer on how he shall now live in light of evil times. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but there's this textual pattern tying the whole of chapter 1 together, which I think culminates here in chapter 2, verse 1. And it's this, this theme of looking, seeing, and looking. See there in chapter 1, verse 3? His cry and complaint is, Why do you make me to see iniquity while you idly look at wrong? And, and, and God answers using Habakkuk's own words in verse 5, right? You look among the nations and see, I am doing something. It's as if God is saying, listen here, O young Habakkuk. I know you think you're a prophet, a a seer, but be careful about why you think you see. Be careful about who you think is allowing you to do this. I see what's going on. I'm God. I see all and I know all. You're the one who needs to look and see. Your vision is too small, Habakkuk. You only see what's in front of you. Look out farther. See what I'm doing with the distant nation Babylon. You're not looking far enough. Look. See. See what I'm doing there. Habakkuk kind of responds in verse 13, right? Look there at verse 13. He says, okay, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? In other words, okay, I, got, I, I, I get it, God. You, you, you do see, you do know all. But why are you now content to look at people even more blind than we are? You're using and raising up a people who don't even know you. They're not even aware of you because they're blinded by their own strength and their own idolatry. See that in verse 16? Babylon sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. And yet Habakkuk gets to the end of his honest worship. Perhaps a bit exasperated, but certainly a little bit more cautious. And he says, okay, God, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One, I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and I will look out to see what you will say to me. In other words, God, I know my station in life. I'm your prophet. You have made me to be a seer. And what I see from my watchtower is only what your all-seeing providence allows me to see. My worship 
will be grounded and my, my complaints will, will be held back by acknowledging that you are the all-seeing God. Now, the word providence, right, is pro vide. Latin vide is to look pro forward. God is the God of providence, the God who looks, sees forward. But his providence isn't just a seeing forward, is it? Now, God's providence is a, is a controlling providence. He brings an end to the beginning. He sets history according to the tempo and the melodic line that he wants it to set. In Bible study, we've been going through the book of Revelation, which is that great looking forward to the final day. And it's interesting how Jesus Christ, the God of all history, begins this book of his revelation. He starts out in Revelation 1 by saying, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he tells John to write what you see in a book and then send it to all the churches. John says, I turned and and I looked and I saw the voice that was speaking to me. And then when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. and, And he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I am the first and I am the last. He's the God of history. The first and the last, the beginning and the end, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Friends, we serve and worship a God who knows the end from the beginning, who sees it, and will bring it about exactly as he is foreordained in his providence. The end of Revelation can say, come, Lord Jesus, come, in honest, challenged worship, because it's grounded and anchored in the God who has, has done it all. And even in our tough times now, even in the in the the darkest pits of struggles that we're going in through. God has given us the end, and in Christ we can worship him, trust in him, and continue to put our joy in him with challenged, honest worship. Let's pray.